0: Good morning, everybody. This is the Wild Society Podcast, and this is Jeff Edwards. Um, I'm joined, as per usual, by Hunter Ritter, our brand manager at Wild Society, and Chase Myers, who is... I don't know, Chase, what is your actual job description or title at Wild Society? What are we, what are we calling you these days? I only have one. So, generalist? Like, head dishwasher and and a shipper and floor sweeper, whatever? Um Well, so we have Chase Myers, who is, he's the, he leads our, uh, our efforts at Wild Society or the efforts, I shouldn't say ours, the efforts at Wild Society. Um, Wild Society is, um, an instant coffee and, um, ground, uh, coffee, uh, and soon to be Keurig coffee supplier, um that is it was started by uh by a bunch of people who were just dedicated to supporting hunting, backcountry hunting, and conservation. So um we want to give a shout out to Wild Society for sponsoring the podcast. And I also want to welcome our guest for today. We have Andy Mochel with us today, who's a friend. Um, he's also a fellow participant in the outdoor industry as an entrepreneur. Um And he's also known other, he's AKA the flip-flop guy. Is that fair, Andy? Yeah, that's,
1: that's a fair statement. Okay. Well, Andy also has his own podcast. Tell us what the name of your podcast is. Uh, podcast is just the flip-flop guy podcast, and it's pretty much distributed on any podcast platform that you can find.
0: Spotify, Apple, and all the above. Yes, sir. Awesome. Well, I'll tell you, here's how this works. Like Andy, um, Asked me to be on his podcast, which I was on his podcast, and uh, and I, I really enjoyed the experience. And um, he made it easy for me, but we also ended up into some really deep stuff. And I, I had made a decision after that podcast that I was going to get even by having him come on ours. <laughs> and I'm going to we're going to dig in a little bit on Andy today because he's an interesting guy with a great story. Um, but you know the wild the Wild Society podcast is is sort of a a place you can come to meet interesting people and hear their story. And hopefully you can learn from, you know, these passionate people who have done amazing things in the outdoor industry. Um, and uh, hopefully you can get informed on how maybe you can, you know, take some shortcuts and have success. And if you wanna join our industry or, or uh, are interested in it, how's that? Is that fair? Um, I am super comfortable being the questions guy. But one thing that I like to do is make sure that I get everybody involved in the (laughs) podcast. I have two guys with me in Hunter and Chase who are, I would say, content to be quiet observers. Um, So I'm going to change things up today because we're going to get them more involved. Because you know, some of the greatest uh, conversations and ideas come from the most obscure places. And 100%. And these guys are on my team. We work together for a reason. Because I have a tremendous respect for both of them and their perspective. So the first podcast we did was with Brendan Burns from Kuyu. Throwing shade at Burns. Yeah. Like, <laughs> But I don't think they said more than a few words the whole time. Because Brendan and I have both done a fair amount of media. Yeah. So we're super comfortable. And I think they're super thoughtful
1: yeah. about what they're going to say. Well, not only media. You guys have spent a lot of time in the woods together. You guys yeah. have traveled a bunch together. You have a very dynamic relationship which benefits the conversation inside the podcast and maybe intimidates other people from being able to be involved or step in and
0: well, and if they say something stupid, I'm going to make fun of them. Yeah. Like, I just, like, that's what I do. And I think they, they expect that too. So yeah. that probably doesn't create an environment of, of safe. We're not in the, we're not in the, what do they call the um, safe tree or whatever right now? Mm-hmm. The trust tree. So you don't want to tree. go shoot
1: my AKs or anything like no, that? No, no.
0: We're just, <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to, we're going to give them an assignment because I'm getting them involved early. We're going to go in hot. So both of them are going to ask you um, a question. Um and and there's like they're unprepared like i'm sure they were sitting there thinking they were just going to sit here and and observe and they're, they're not. both kind of flushed right now i know they're embarrassed like yeah. this is good like I'm i like a little it nervous so uh hunter why don't you start you get Do you have a question for our friend andy here
2: oh yeah i got one um didn't know this podcast was happening until about you know 20 minutes ago but sweet it's good so this is more for both andy and jeff it's kind of interesting because it's I know where this, the direction this podcast is gonna go is kinda like the outdoor industry and how to get started in it. And um, I kinda wanna know like, it's not an easy industry to get into. It's a kinda diluted and it's, it has a lot of like growing up. I mean, it was like the goal, you know, if you're enjoying the outdoors or whatever, everyone would, like had their own thing. They all wanted to be, but the older you get, the more kinda, and that's how I was, realistic you had to be where it's like man like there's a lot of easier options like there's you know like what would be
0: an easier option
2: for example go be a a contractor and build homes and like there's a lot of i mean there's a huge demand it's not like uh not a hard job to get not a hard job to get there's so it just in my mind it's like like you can make a lot of money and and even with like there is money to be made here and you guys are two examples of very successful people that have done it, but it's like, I mean, there's a lot of, like I said, other options. So like, is it the passion or what, what kind of got you guys to pursue? Cause it, I guess in my mind, it can't be just the money, right? Like, because there's other options that you could probably kill it way more. It's not the money. Yeah. That's, that's oftentimes I to in the outdoor second industry, what Chase
1: not. comes in and says, it's, it's definitely not yeah, the money, no, the financial sure. aspect of for it. Sure. I mean, yes we're looking at, I can't remember. And, and Jeff, you might have better input on this. I, I think the outdoor space is roughly a, a 2 billion or $3 billion industry a year. I, I think it's actually much bigger
0: than that. Is it, you know, it, I, every time you try to quantify it, there's a different report that comes out. Um, I think excise tax was based, and this is a total flyer. Like, we should probably fact check this and we'll come back and edit in the true number. But I think the last time I saw excise tax was based on like $8 billion. That, I mean, if you think about it, firearms represent the outdoor industry.
1: 100%. There's a lot. REI represents the outdoor industry. 100%. Yeah. So
0: it could be 20 billion. But if you just look at it from the perspective of every company that's paying, excise tax dollars that are used to obtain, maintain um, public hunting lands and opportunity. How, what is so it? according to NSSF, um, the hunting and firearms industry contributed to $70.52 in total economic activity in the country okay, so I was way in wrong.
1: 2021. So way, way wrong.
0: Well, I mean, you're starting to talk about that's a like viral hunting trip, yeah. yeah, fishing yeah, trips. Yeah, yeah. Like it's starting to become like the entire service component of it. Regardless, it's not a small industry. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. I think one of the things um, I don't want interru- to I don't want to interrupt no, you, Andy, you're good. but I would say this is that um, I think people get into it because they're passionate about it. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know about everybody else. I know for me One of my big influences about what I was going to do with my life was my grandfather. He lived across the street and uh, we were really close. And he always said, Jeff, you know, and it's a cliche, but it's a true one is pick something that you love to do and you never work a day in your life. And when you hear that over and over and over as a kid, like, I think it's impossible for that not to impact the way you contemplate where you're going to, what you're going to do with your life. Like I worked in a steel plant. Uh, you know as a young person you know getting through college and trying to grow up and pay my bills and I was certain that, that I wasn't going to work to do something I love um, and that I felt like I was working every minute of every hour of every day I had to go to work there it was miserable like um, Joe Rogan has a quote that he talks about is that men live most of their lives in in a quiet desperation and and that's one of his favorite quotes um, and I, th- I would agree with that. Like, I think that's true. Most people don't choose happiness. They choose a career that makes them the money that allow to, to deliver the lifestyle because they
1: probably are more... Um, well, not only the lifestyle, but the constructed American, the wife, the car, the house, the fence. The picket fence. You know what I mean? Yeah. and 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 all that. And I think in the last... 15 to 20 years, we've seen a huge pivot from the standard traditional American dream of the money, the job and all that. You look at a lot of millennials. I don't, from all the kids I grew up with, I don't know one that has picked a, they have careers, but their career is rolling into a new job every four years and raising the bar every four years and making more money and everything that goes along with that. But There's not many friends that I grew up with where I can be like, wow, they've been at their job for 20 years.
0: And and I agree. I think that's true. It's like we have become a very um, transient uh, civilization, if you will, in the United States where um, you're, you know, the best or the fastest way I think people get promoted is not by staying, it's by leaving. (laughs) And it's kind of, it's counterintuitive. Like as a company, you want to develop talent. And and retain it, retain it, but when but there's a lot of timing that has to be a part of that. Like, hey, Hunter, you know you've been with us now for a couple two months,
1: months.
0: right? And you could progress quickly because you're you know really good at what you do. You're very determined and self disciplined, self starting guy. You could get to a place where one day you come to work and be like Jeff, like I'm ready for my next challenge. Well. I want to keep you, but it would depend that there was a next challenge that met your timing, your timetable. And so I think young people today, like you hear everybody sort of castigating them for that. Well, counter to that, my father-in-law worked at the same company for an incredibly long period of time in his career. And he got into his mid fifties and guess what they did? They They ushered him out the door. So he gave his best years to a company and when he started to be considered an an expensive older employee, they showed him the door. That's what happened to me at my last job. Yeah. So when you think about it that way, it's like, you know what, like the NBA has become a player first league And, and they're player first because the power is with the players because like it's all about like how skilled a player you are and that makes all the difference it's not the team it's the collection of you know uber talented people but i think that same analogy can be applied to all of business like it's incumbent on me as a business leader if i want to retain my talent is to make sure that there's timing around the opportunities that open up for someone that retain someone like Hunter like that's what we have to do or we should wish him well and help him to achieve what he wants to do next it's an entrepreneurial way of working for people and that's actually in and of itself a fascinating new dynamic that Mm -hmm. COVID I think has expedited Mm -hmm. but so your choices are you are a free agent every three or four years right because you can get paid you want to you want to cash in every chance you get. You don't want to waste a year waiting. You want to get paid. Two, um, you you can so you can do that, or you can start your own business where you can't get fired, or at least conceptually, as long as you do <laughs> a good job, your, your customers don't fire you, right? And I think so that's what's fascinating about Andy. I started as an employee in this industry. I went to work at, at Hoyt as a young person and was given a great opportunity and and so I, i'll be honest like i don't i don't think when i went to hoyt like it was in my mind that i was going to go be a, a a business entrepreneur it wasn't i thought i'd just be a big company and like because i thought it was kind of cool like you know from like a big deal I a i was a big fish in a little pond at that time and i probably thought it was really cool but at the end of the day you know, you get to a place where you're like, "Well, I'm doing this and making someone else a lot of money, and I'm working in an industry I love, but I want to make more money." So, the only way you can really be in charge of your destiny is if you seize control of it at some point, or if you're blessed to be with a group of people that are like-minded. Mm-hmm. So, Andy, what? How did you end up? To I think to Hunter's point, which is. How did you end up the flip flop guy? Because you could be working for somebody, I guess, right? Or are you virtually unemployable?
1: Uh, <laughs> well, I was very employable for <laughs> a number of a number of years. <clears throat> um, for me, 2015 was when I kind of started setting my sights on the outdoor industry. And when I set my sights on the outdoor industry and the outdoor space, I was a no name hunter, a no name person, um, outside of my immediate community, uh, as somebody who threw awesome barbecues every year because I hunted hard and I killed deer every year. And I was that depending on how many animals I was able to kill every year, that was dependent on how many barbecues I was able to have every year. Right. If I killed one buck Okay, That meant I could do two flip-flop barbecues, which would usually include striped bass, halibut, smoked salmon that my dad and I smoked, um, abalone that we'd dive and catch, or you know dive and pull off the seafloor ourselves, um, and everything like that. To what you were saying, Jeff, my grandfather is a huge inspiration for me, and my grandfather's life, as well as my uncle's life, and how they both got to live their lives in the outdoors, and really making an impact. My grandfather was a California fishing game warden. Um, He was one of the first deep sea divers that California fishing while or fishing game ever had. Um, So his whole career was hunting and fishing and diving and everything like that. My uncle was the, the creator for the first housing for underwater camera for Nikon. Well, that just elevated him into a position of being one of three people on the planet who was taking underwater photos and spun him into a whole different world and realm of photography and, and outdoors. So in 2000 and maybe I can't remember the specific year around 2010 was when I kind of dove into starting to do hunters education and teaching hunters education. And a lot of that was based out of the fact of I was having adult friends that wanted to get into hunting by watching what I was getting to go do. and, They were really curious. They didn't come from a family or background of hunting because we were from Marin County in California. So they'd go to enroll in a hunter's education class. Well, at that time, to get into a hunter's education class, you're looking at driving round trip 80 miles, and maybe it was once every three months. There was very little hunter's education going on. So I dove into hunter's education, and around the same time, that was when there was a huge uptick. So we started teaching classes anywhere from 50 to 125 students, hunters education at a time, Um, whether it was a four hour class or the, or the two day class and the traditional class Uh, that really propelled me into getting to work with first time hunters and people that were new to the outdoors and understanding ethics and what I Probably had been taking for granted my entire life, having been born into a family of generational hunting uh, across America. So 2015 rolls around, I set my sights on the hunting industry, which meant... There was a lot of stuff that had to change as far as what I was doing, what I was willing to do, the amount of effort and work I was willing to put into it. On top of that, I had a career in tie-dye, fashion, textiles, and all of that, color. That's a whole different ball of wax that we could get into if you guys want, but relevant, but irrelevant. Work ethic is relevant. What I learned there is probably not so much. Um, however, that job. What did you
0: learn there when you're doing tie dye? Are you like smoking a lot of dope? Or no,
1: no, I, I was actually, I was, I was sober. I, I was sober while I was there. I, I knew that. I was just yeah. trying to agitate you. No, I know, I know. <laughs> um, no, what I did learn there. I mean, I showed up early. I left late. Um, there was nothing that I wouldn't do to further my understanding, Um, I was pretty much brand manager of all of that company's brand name products, um, as well as a warehouse manager for all of their products. I had to do analysis of sales of colors, which colors were selling better, which times of year, uh, product development and building and creating new colors. You know, I think when I started there, we had maybe 100 colors, and by the time I left, I had Brought the company up to well over 180 colors, along with 40 um, seasonal colors and seasonal, uh, yeah, just seasonal colors that we'd put out, whether it was for holidays or for fall or spring. And going, so you guys had like a fall tie dye. That's well, so that's kind of sweet. Like, well, what does that look like? So. It was tie dye. That was, that was the base of the company. Right. Um, however, some of our biggest clients was like Vera Wang, Disney, Warner brothers, uh, a lot of the highest end fashion people, because what I was creating was the physical dye itself. We weren't dyeing anything. So you would come to us and you'd be like, I need these 25 different colors to match my movie set or to match my shirts, you know, and my job was making sure that if someone bought a hundred pounds of dye from us, which I believe two ounces of dye roughly covers 25 pounds of fabric. So when someone would come and they'd be buying a hundred pounds of dye, everything that they'd be dying for their entire run would be perfect. There would be no, um, displacement there'd be no like a black gray and then a yellow gray that came out of one dye lot.
0: I mean that is such like a corporate
1: takeover of the hippie culture.
0: Yeah. I mean like you were literally the man then. Yeah, so and I don't I, mean the man as in hey you're the man. Like I mean like you know if you're a hippie like the corporate guys are like you know they're trying to shove it to the man mm-hmm. but you were like the corporate guy doing the die and capitalizing on something as simplistic as and what taking
1: all the proceeds and going and hunting animals right. all over america <laughs> like how
0: about you they just did not have any clue what their money was doing
1: no it's so a funny story i mean it was a hippie tie-dye company that was started Shocking. in the summer of love yeah. on a bunch of lsd I, like that was the birth even, of the company you literally
0: didn't need to tell me that like yeah. i felt that from the beginning like, yeah you're, that's why I asked you the question, which was a good question. And I, I'm just—I'm trying to give myself a lot
1: of credit here, but like, were you smoking dope? Is a logical question if you're working at a tie dye company. Yeah. So I brought an Shrims? entirely different work ethic to the company than 99% of their employees, which allowed me to climb from literally the bottom of the company. It was my first time in five years having employment because of my injuries for my knee and my back and workman's comp and a whole bunch of other stuff from when I was doing roofing. Um, So I brought a whole different kind of work ethic to the company, which allowed me to go from the bottom of the company to, you know, roughly third or fourth ranked employee within um, the managerial role and allowed I mean I was in it within three years of of being inside the company and controlling my entire department which my department was responsible for well over 40 percent of the company's revenue
0: so um, do you mind if I ask some follow-up questions no because that's interesting to me because like I've I've spent you know I'm older now I'm 54 right mm-hmm. so when I started in the industry I was 24 so literally 30, 30 years of observation and the questions that I'm about to ask you mm-hmm. is like, one, do you think that your insecurity around your qualifications for what you were trying to do then drove you to say, well, what I don't know, I have to make up for in work ethic. Mm-hmm. That's a question.
1: Well, a lot of my work ethic comes and shameless plug, I guess, for Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, A lot of my work ethic and the way that I perceive a lot of things all comes directly and is directly related to Alcoholics Anonymous and what was taught to me there by the men that paved the road before me for sobriety and and helped me through my sobriety. So that's where a lot of my work ethic comes from, where my drive and motivation um, and determination within that workspace came from was... I walked into a job that I had absolutely no business doing and insecurity would be a really good way to put lack of knowledge and ignorance, um, which drove me to go as far as I possibly could to understand everything better than anybody else that had come before me, because not that I strive for perfection, but I strive for as close to it as I can get while learning from my mistakes along the way.
0: That's a a powerful statement, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's an acknowledgement of your journey. That's really interesting. I I have this thing that I say a lot in the office here is like, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. And forgive me for what I'm about to say, because it's going to sound bad before it sounds good. You're good. But... I, my wife and I, and as you know, we, we, uh, own and operate, um, sober living homes mm-hmm. and, um, the people that we have met and been blessed to be a part of their lives that have come through those homes. Um, one of the common threads is there's a perception that like, oh, they're a drug addict. They don't want to work and they're lazy and they're all, and it's like, you guys don't understand. They have addictive personalities. They tend to be pretty extreme. So Andy, I, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is probably a good conversation piece for you because I see it in you is that the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. When you were doing drugs, you did them really like all in, right? Mm-hmm. Like and then when you decided not to you didn't do them all in anymore and you were completely done when it I needed was time. to find something to fill that void so your behavioral substitution for your addiction because you're still a driven crazy you know individual type a, yeah. like going to you decided that it was going to be work mm-hmm. and i would say that that's something that i have noticed about the people that i have been blessed to know that have come through our homes is that they're phenomenal employees
1: because of that Common thread amongst them all. Well, it's the ism of alcoholism, right? That's the drive, that's the motivation. You know, if it's said a lot, is like, if you can put a tenth of the energy that I would put into finding my next fix, my next bottle, my next whatever it was, if I could put a tenth of that energy into my work. How far can I go with my work? So let's rewrap that. Let's repackage that. Well, let's, let's put at least 50% of the effort of finding a bag into work and, and completing and successfully doing whatever the task is at hand through employment. And let's see how far we can go with that. Fast forward climbing into the company's top ranks inside three years.
0: Well, and that's cool because like there's another component to it that I think um, addicts have a limitation that a lot of the rest of the world that doesn't understand that world, because it's a different, it's a world in and of itself. Oh, yeah. um, Is that they tend to become phenomenal entrepreneurs by necessity because it's hard to find an addict who hasn't had some run in with the law, who hasn't had a run in financially, meaning checks, you know, whatever it may be, yeah. didn't pay their bills on time because their addiction has controlled their life. So they don't have great credit. They don't generally have a spotless uh, education record or that depending on when their addiction took, took hold of them. But um, that could certainly be a part of it. But what you what you do see are these incredibly driven people that are just whatever they're doing, they're doing all in like a hundred percent. If you, if you're an addict and you're sleeping on a park bench in winter time so that you can save the money that you'd have spent on rent for your fix. Like that's a pretty big commitment. That's gnarly. like Right? It's a gnarly way of life. And and I'm not making light of it. I'm respecting it because I will tell you that, like my wife and I, that was one of the things I think that we, we've learned from, those, from our people there that, that, uh, that are in that program or run it because we don't do either one. We're not addicts. So we have no, Hands no perspective. We, we, we are there to fuel what they're trying to do, their mission. But we've been blessed to be good observers. And I will tell you that the, there's a couple of things that make a great entrepreneur. And one of them is that sort of hyper focus and that sort of drive to, to, to do whatever you're going to do you out hard work beats talent when talent doesn't work hard. And the truth is like when you're starting over and you finally figured out your why, and you want to be clean and sober, you also don't say, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to accept that I'm going to live a less life because of my past. Mm-hmm. Like they work hard to create, to, to make up for lost time. and. I think they make great entrepreneurs, if I'm being completely frank. I don't know. I think it is a personality in some respects. But also, there's another component to it where they don't have as many options, right? So they have to... Being self-employed is a great option for an addict because they can determine their own heights that they can climb to, not some... HR person that's doing a background check and says, well, this person's bumped their head a few times, Mm -hmm. like they're great. They give themselves second chances. And I think that's cool. And, And would you say that's descriptive of you?
1: Yes. 100%.
0: Cool. Well, so a common thread among entrepreneurial people is that hard work is something they embrace,
1: right? Well, it's a challenge, right? What, cha- what is the, challenge? <clears throat> the What's challenge? the challenge for flip-flop? <sighs> That's a whole different ball of wax that we could attempt to get into. We're gonna, um, no, we're getting into it. Oh, we're it. getting into all the problems. We're going to we'll get into it. We'll get right. into
0: like it. Everybody looks at people who own their own business and there's like this, like this dream that it's always easy and it's like, Guys, like there's no day I get to wake up and come to work and not confront major major challenges. Like there's personnel issues, there's personality conflicts, there's cash, there's capital requirements, there's customers and their needs. And like, so it's like you trade problems when you own your own business as compared to being an employee. When you're an employee, your paycheck's gonna be there on Friday, regardless of your results. As a business owner, A lot of things have to go right every day for you to go like, hey, I get paid this month. And that's part of it, isn't it? Yeah. And how like so where are you in that process? Like without being specific, I'm not trying to delve into your income. But yeah, like when you start a business, it's like, well, I hope someday to make money. And then there's the part where, hey, I actually made a little bit of money. And then there's the part of the business that if you're successful, you go, Hey, this thing's kind of got its own momentum. It's created its own legs and I'm not necessarily have to go out there and pioneer it anymore.
1: Now I can hire somebody. Right. So where? okay, talk, take me through the story. Where are you at in that transition? Um, so I'm what, a year, a year and eight months, a year and 10 months into my brand itself. Um, Where am I at? So that's difficult. That's a difficult question. So this year was and has been, whether it be web sales or um, private cooks, has been far superior to my prior years. Year. Um, That being said, what's made it different?
0: I got, I'm going to catch you with one here,
1: I think. Yeah, you're good. What's made it different this year than prior? Um, well, I mean, the brand is getting more longevity. There's a lot more people that are finding out about it. Uh, okay, so let's quantify that. Mm-hmm. Let's quantify it with...
0: And I, I tell a story here, and I want to know if this is true of you. You could say, no, it's not. Yeah. And, and, I, and But I have a theory. I'm working on writing a book, okay? I'm ready for it. Here's my theory. Like... And and Hunter's heard it and I know Chase has heard it many times and hates it. Is everything okay? Okay. I thought maybe something had gone awry awry with our podcast. Uh, Okay. Well, here's my theory is like Christianity and Christ is the, like forget about it as a function of like, it's an, like my spirituality aligns with Christ's teachings. That's just me. But forget about all that for a minute. Take yourself out of the religious component of it and look at it for what it has it become. And what it has become is Christ taught a way to live that gave you a promise of salvation and eternal uh, residence in heaven. And he had this roadmap map that he was providing for people in the form of his teachings that if they adopted them they could experience these joys of christianity okay so but somebody someone somewhere was first like you know we know he was born to a carpenter and a virgin that were a newly a new a new married couple is that a fair way to put it or at least they were new together and he was raised in a very uh, unique environment But somebody somewhere was the first person that he sat down with and said, hey, I wanna teach you about something that I have in me because I'm the son of God. And I can't like, I can't wrap my head around that because like if you could present to me, what would be the most difficult business that you could possibly come up with? It would be like religion. And the whole world at that time was, Judaism, I think that was predominant, at least where he was at. I mean, there were certainly other things going on in other other religions in other parts of the world. But his big, I would say, his big uh, competitor is that, a, like, let's call it that, right? Was was uh, the Jewish faith, and he was giving a, a twist uh, based on the New Testament or a, sort of an amended version of what they believed in, and people were really uncomfortable by, by it. But he found twelve disciples and really, if we could put it into a marketing context, he found 12 people that would ride for the brand. And like, once he got those 12 people, he had, they were his early adopters. They were the ones that were like, he told them from the beginning, he didn't sneak up on people. I admire this about him. He was like, Hey, if you follow me, your life's going to suck on earth. Like you're doing this for your afterlife, not for this life. And when I think about like, like if you could sit and teach a MBA class to, you know, a bunch of aspiring future entrepreneurs and you're telling them like, here's the hardest business model I could ever come up with because, oh, by the way, this one doesn't even come with revenue. Like it comes with no revenue. There is no money in it. It's eternal salvation. And people are like, well, how do you quantify that? It's like pure faith, right? You can't touch it. You can't smell it. You can't feel it in the sense of with your fingers. I think once you've become faithful, you feel it in your soul. But that approach to marketing is an analogy for how every small business owner entrepreneur has to go about starting. There's no shortcuts. you got to no get shortcuts, right? Like, like there's. Overnight success is like the biggest bullshit thing anybody's ever come up with. There's no one ever in the history of mankind that has been an overnight success. It's like hard work meets opportunity and hard work is getting someone to believe. Well, getting I mean, one can, person, the first person to say yes.
1: We, we can talk about that and, and relating it to my story would be like. Well, before you do that, yeah. would you agree with that analogy? Yes. Okay. 100%. So I, I did go back to what you were going to say. So before building my brand and building what I've built with the flip-flop guy was five years of maximum effort all the time in every direction in the hunting space and building those relationships that have helped me get to where I am now. Now, I wouldn't call anybody that I've built relationships with disciples of the flip-flop under any circumstance, but... But you've built belief. I've built belief, you know what I mean? And, and again, I'll throw shade at Burns because Burns has been in this since before day one even was conceived. You know, like I've built relationships and a lot of my relationships that I've built to get to where I am has been breaking bread over deer legs in all different facets of life across the board. You know, so I, I spent five years developing relationships before I went to market with my brand, while working since 2017 on developing my sauce and developing everything on the back end without talking to anybody about it except for my family before I launched in twenty twenty. So
0: that's interesting and fascinating because a couple of things that I want to kind of hone in on out of what you just said. Um you knew you were going to do it for five years and were working towards it before you actually launched. Three years. Three
1: years before well you I launched. knew that I was gonna be developing I didn't know exactly what it was gonna be and that didn't come to fruition probably until twenty nineteen.
0: Well, in that it's 2022, it's only been three years since you, or two years since you launched in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that you have to be good at is pivoting as an entrepreneur because you think you know what your customer may want or would be willing to pay for. Were you 100% correct with what your original initial ideas were? Or have you pivoted or had to amend any of those things?
1: I have pivoted as far as releasing other products.
0: Look, okay, so let, let me say this before we go any further. Um, we're going to put up the URL on the uh, in the notes mm-hmm. for the podcast so that people can understand what exactly the flip flop phenomenon is. Because yeah. we're there's a we're all so familiar with it that we're endemic to it that I don't think if I could if I could have done it better I would have done a better job of setting up what you pardon me what you do. But you're taking the leg of the rear rear quarter of a, of a deer, an elk or whatever, some game animal. And you're cooking it, an ungulate of some kind and cooking it over an open fire. And you've developed a process and my grandfather developed a process. Okay. uh, Well said you, you've continued to iterate that process. Carry
1: the torch. Yeah.
0: And, 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 and have turned that into um, like sauces that you're putting on to marinate that that are are conducive to that high heat open flame environment and not burning and so you've created like a style of cooking and the accessories that are required in order for someone to do it and be successful is that a fair way to say it yeah and so um i think We'll put that uh, link up in our in our in the podcast in the notes so that somebody can click on it and they can actually watch you do a flip flop. Mm-hmm. Um, we've we've all done it with you, Hunter. Have you done one yet?
1: I have
0: not. Oh my gosh, you're missing it! It's some of the best food I've ever eaten. It's unbelievable.
1: We'll have to set one up at the shop.
0: Yeah, at be, some point before that'd be cool. I, like winter I, comes, I'd love that. So <laughs> this is a good place, I think. Like, um, let's take a quick break. Um, and then we're gonna come back in and finish, okay? This is a good jumping off point. Okay, we had a little break. We had to take a little studio break. Um, And uh, when we left off, Andy had us just completely captivated with the story about the development of the flip-flop phenomenon and where he was in the trajectory of his company that he launched in 2020.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we were talking about like, okay, where are you at in the process? And, and I'd ask you a question about, um, you know, there's that part where you're like, you hope you sell something or sell some. And then you're like, well, I think I actually made a little bit of money. And if things go well, you get to a place where you're like, wow, this is like recurring revenue. I have people that are believers in the brand. We talked a lot about the 12 disciples. And I asked you a question. I said, where are you in that process? And I think that would be a good place to sort of reinsert here as we get back back going here. So um, Andy, the flip-flop sauce, the flip-flop man. (laughs) Where, where are you today in your process, your evolutionary trajectory of maturing your company into something that you can, you know,
1: build enterprise value with? So right now where I'm at, and <clears throat> there's a lot of financial stuff, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a lot of financial stuff that goes in on the back end, uh, especially with trademarking. Trademarking has been my gnarliest battle that I've fought, and I've been fighting my trademark battle since before. I actually even launched the brand and the sauce because you want to own that flip-flop space. Yes. And have people tried to infringe on that? Yes, absolutely. There's definitely people that try to infringe on it. There's definitely people that are trying to, trying to utilize it for their own sense. There's also on the back end of that, a lot of people that won't recognize me or give me the time of day because they're not the ones who came up with or, or, not came up with I should say introduced have you ever watched that show stolen valor Like, the guy who, like, goes and finds people who claim that they're
0: Navy SEALs or whatever it is, and he, like, outs them? Yeah. You want to do that? Should we, like...
1: I don't want to out anybody.
0: (laughs) We could just... I mean, this would be a great place. It's long form. It's the beautiful part of it. It's, like, there's there's no censorship. There's no limitations on the amount of time we apply to it. How about if we do this? Like, let's just put them all on
1: notice. Like, the next time Andy comes in... I have already come up with cease and desist letters for specific parties and individuals and companies. Um, and if it happens, if it continues to happen or happens further, there definitely will be cease and desist letters. Um, I'm in the finalize finalization right now with my trademark, um, and private chef services, which will be very beneficial. Um, I'll helping that with the cease and desist letters. Um, so you've now gotten, an, uh, an expert level education
0: on finance, supply chain, legal. Was that a fair statement? I mean, I wouldn't call it expert, but I'm still learning. But you know a lot more about it than you thought you were going to when you started. Yes. Is that a fair statement?
1: Supply chain, I understood. I had a really pretty decent understanding of in the physical dye world, just because everything we were doing was coming imported from India. And that was our biggest problem that we were having was running out of specific dies to create other dies. Uh, So when I started this, that was one of the first things that I attacked was making sure that I was going to be able to have enough inventory if needed and when needed to continue without running out of anything. Um, But the legal stuff, I'm still learning constantly. I hate paying $425 an hour to an attorney. That hurts, phone calls suck, emails suck. Text messages suck. My entire process with all of that has been very brutal and financially draining. Um, On top of that, uh, I've been working rigorously on the back end, coming up with seasonings, coming up with new sauces and other ways to. So when people come to my website, it's not just two sauces and a rosemary Evo, a rosemary infused olive oil so they have more options, um, and a better spectrum of different products that they can a- expect and anticipate that they can use in their everyday life and their cooking experience while they're feeding their family and friends. Very cool. So one of the things that like,
0: I think if you were to do an MBA class or they probably even teach it in business classes, is like Everybody's looking for that business that you have a moat around it, whether it's IP or barriers to entry um, or cost of entry. Um, so, what you're experiencing right now is people are starting to see. That you're gaining velocity, you're branding a space that's never been. There was no flip flop before Andy Mokel showed up, before Al Gettings showed
1: up, but well, yes, your grandfather, right? yes.
0: But you're commercializing it. Yes, I guess. You, your grandfather came up with a technique that you've turned and into the a sauce, and you've turned that into a business. Yes, before, and that, right? that
1: was actually figured out between me, and my parents, and my grandparents and parents' best friends on whether or not I was going to be allowed to take this to market. Um, and that was in 2017 we all sat down and had a conversation, a serious business conversation about it. Um, Are any of those folks, investors like your parents, no, your there's uncles, no or- investors, but myself, everything is fully funded through me by all, whatever I can conjure up and you've, and
0: you've never had like done an equity or a seed round. You just, nope. you like literally ground it out of your pocket.
1: Yep. Every single dime that's been put into my company has come out of my pocket. So invariably when you do that, and I think that's really cool,
0: by the way, Mm -hmm. you had such a passion for what you thought was a great business that you went all in. Mm -hmm. Most people that do that, they are risk averse or maybe are moderately risk averse. And the first thing they do is they want to raise money with some high net worth (laughs) person. And what they're really saying is, I think it's a good idea, but I don't
1: want to take all the risk. Yeah. So... For me, this is where I'm at. And and we'll kind of get into my why with this as well. Um, when I started this... This is a lot. A lot of my business education and finance has come from extracurricular activities in my teenage years and how I made money in my teenage years.
0: Can, do you mind if I ask what you're talking about? Because
1: when you're really vague like that, that tells me you're talking about something you did that was illegal. Yes, it was 100 percent illegal. Uh, <laughs> tell us what you were. So by the what time. What was your I, sales and marketing strategy and what was your why in your teenage years, Andy? So <laughs> when I was very young. Uh, I started out with a quarter ounce of pot. Oh, all right. Okay. And I took a quarter... A controlled substance. A control, I'm. Is weed a controlled substance? At that time, it was okay. a controlled... Okay. A point in time. So I, I would take seven grams of pot, which I would get for roughly $80, mm-hmm. and I could turn around and make $140. And then with that $140, I could turn around by a half ounce. Now I've doubled, doubled what I have, and... Then double my money as well. So now I have two hundred and eighty dollars, which I could get an ounce and an eighth, and an ounce and an eighth, increase the list, and continue on until it's pounds and pounds and pounds. And
0: the only disruption is you had very happy customers. Am I is that fair to say? Yes. Did you consider going into like the Cheetos and Doritos delivery service to go along with your that's like a value? Absolutely not. Okay. Well, just it wouldn't. I think it would. Like I think like if you were smelling or selling, smelling. If you're (laughs) selling. ganja that you should sell munchies as a, a big it's a value proposition that's undeniable for people
1: who smoke marijuana. i mean i would sell chocolates but they were like weed chocolates or weed rice krispie treats or okay cupcakes. so you're
0: the only real like when you did a uh did you ever do a swat analysis of your business when you were a teenager i should have but Strengths, no i didn't weaknesses opportunities and threats no because it was it just occurs to me it's like Wow, there's great margins in that business. Why haven't I thought of it? Yeah. And then I thought, well, maybe there's something in the SWOT analysis that would have told me it was a bad idea. Did any of like imagine here for a minute, you did a SWOT analysis of Mm -hmm. your business plan Mm -hmm. as a teenager. What would have been under threats? The government. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's called the wheels of justice that never stop turning seven days a week, 24 hours. Did they catch you it's up It's called to the,
1: you? WAD, the war on drugs. Did they catch up to you, Andrew? No.
0: Never did. No. So that was not your impetus for, take me through how we've gone from, because that's entrepreneurial. It kind of, it, it like we're circling back to our earlier part of our conversation. I was like, the addicts <laughs> in our houses are some of the most entrepreneurial people I know. Yeah. And um, so, tell me, what made you decide at one point? You were like, with such a high margin product, with and a others. customer fan, like they aren't even customers; they're straight up fan fans. Mm-hmm. Like when you show up, nobody's like, "Oh man, here comes my guy," right? Yeah. yeah. So, what happened? What was the impetus for why you got out of that business?
1: If we want to call it that, I'm not even sure. We're gonna fast forward from. When I started around the age of 12. You were... Wait a minute. So you were in the distribution of... uh, Many more
0: things than just marijuana by the age of 12. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, that's... I don't want to glorify that. Yeah. And I know you enough to know that you're not trying to glorify it, yeah. but you've, you, these are business experiences, whether we like the business or not, One hundred percent. what was the impetus for what got, cause you made a lot of money doing it. Is mm-hmm. that fair to say? It,
1: yes, I did. Okay. So what made you get out of it? When I was 19 and I got sober, um, mind you, there was a rehab stint and becoming a ward of the court system in the state of California stint and there as well. Uh, so you were incarcerated. Or were you I just? Was, I was locked up in juvenile hall for 35 days in Marin County, California, which basically is like you get to play PlayStation on your time off. So it's not really a juvenile detention facility. It's a daycare center. It's a daycare center for you know misspent youth. Um, by the time I was 19, I was homeless. I was living in my car. Uh, I was still making good money, but I had lost both of my jobs that I had at the time. I was defecating blood on a daily basis. Nobody in my life wanted anything to do with me. Um, family changed locks. My parents, my grandparents, nobody. I was my friends that I grew up with. Um, nobody wanted anything to do with me. And I kind of woke up one day and and had a a come to Jesus moment and was like, man, I can't live my life like this anymore. This is as lonely. Uh, I mean, was it lonely? I would never say that I thought it was lonely at the time. Lower companionship seeks lower companionship. And we were just a bunch of lower companions together. So I was always surrounded by somebody because I was the guy, um, You were the party just waiting to happen. Yeah, I was the distributor of the party, essentially. Um, Now I'm a distributor of the party, but with deer legs. That's cool. Right? It's a very
0: symbiotic uh, parallel, though, isn't it? I sell bottles of sauce
1: instead of grams of weed. Right.
0: You're giving people something to celebrate together with and to commune with that's a positive in their life mm-hmm. as an indifference to what you had done before. Yes. Which ultimately leads people to a dark place in their lives.
1: Yeah. So now back to what we were we were discussing. So the why and the flip-flop, and this kind of goes in and coupled with Hunter's education and the lack of traditional American ideology that we have in society today. And not only the lack, but the disruption and anti- traditional American ideology that we're all born and bred with, right? That's what we, that's what we come from. That's the fabric of our nation. And be specific. What do you mean by that? The outdoors, guns, hunting, fishing, um, God, God, loving life, having a good time. Um, you know, camaraderie between friends. Uh, those that
0: those were gone for you at that point.
1: Yeah, for sure. But I also think today that they're gone from society and they're being eliminated and eroded from society by our own government. Um, so the flip- this is getting good, man. Because so, now we're gonna get a whole segment here on anti-government. Like, oh, so I mean, for me, I was a punk rocker, right? Now, where I get tripped up as somebody who had a two-foot-tall mohawk and raged against fucking society, is I look at everybody that I was a punk rocker with and how they're a big government Democrat. I mean, I'm. I'll just whatever, like Democrat supporting, anti-gun, anti-freedom, anti-American traditional. If you look at America and our way of life as Americans, our founding fathers were the most fucking punk rock people that ever existed. They went against everything. They went against the grain and they developed and built and structured a system that is almost the most flawless governing system that we've ever seen in the history of the planet and the only way that it's being eroded is from within our own government yeah
0: people are actually clamoring to lose their freedom
1: 100% in exchange for
0: the perception of safety
1: and and you can go even further back than 9-11 you can jump back to the war on drugs and I can't take it back much further than that but everything is based out of fear and what the government and I'll take it further in saying social media and, me, and news media have found is that introducing fear and division into our society is destroying our ability to actually look at what's happening to us as individuals and us with rights and allowing the government to take control of everything where we have nothing. Right. And, and one of those things, and I'll go back to your earlier comment, marijuana. Mm-hmm.
0: The, today's, like, sorry, I don't mean no, to get up on it. Like <laughs> today's good. generations, their view of marijuana is different than, than mine. When I was a kid growing up. Um, yeah, you know, but you're
1: like 70 years old. The videos you saw were <laughs> black and white and people,
0: I, I feel like all I, different kinds I of, feel like I'm 70 no, years old. But, but the truth is, is like. Um, We were told how harmful and what a gateway
1: drug marijuana was so that you shouldn't do it. it, So really quick on a side note, I'm going to I'm going to jump in. And I think where we got lost as far as hemp, marijuana and everything that comes from the hemp plant got really screwed was through the paper industry, through oil industry and through the tobacco industry and the pharmaceuticals and pharmaceuticals as well. And now you're looking at four major industries and I'm sure there's a fifth and I just am ignorant to it that fought tooth and nail every single penny that they could conjure up to do terrible ad campaigns about the benefits that people can receive from things like CBD. What we could have, what could we have created with, a hundred years of serious development with hemp. Right. And the, you know what I mean? Like what could we have created with the oils that it produces? What could we have created? You know, like they used to make vehicles with hemp and how indestructible it was. What could, how much further in evolution could we be if we had used more of those products in the pharmaceutical area, in the paper area, in the clothing area you know what I mean like it's it's it is fascinating because like I think when you're young
0: there's a younger Mm -hmm. I had and it sounds like you didn't have this but I had this uh I grew up in on a farm in a very conservative area in, in Pennsylvania and we had um I would say that we innately trusted our government we trusted our news we trusted the newspaper you know like we had a we were a do the right thing and a, and probably a, a bit of a go along to get along mm-hmm. because the the path and trajectory of the country um, as a young person you know i'd lived through the carter years and then saw that what happened during reagan's presidency and how our economy recovered and then i bounced along but what you start to realize is like our politicians are funded by private enterprise Mm -hmm. and they sell a little bit of themselves for every dollar that they take and we have a lot of people who want to control the narrative about what is good and what is evil and but that goes all the way back to the the base and foundings of different religions well think about it from this perspective when we fought what was the revolutionary war
2: Mm -hmm.
0: like we talk about this here is like there was only three percent of the of what was the colonies at that point the residents of the colonies that actually were willing to fight willing to fight and were actually wanting to secede three percent created an entire company which our country which has become a phenomenon and their you said it, they were a bunch of punk rockers. Well, they were, they were anti-establishment. They did not accept the monarchy. They did not accept rep- you know, taxation without representation. And, you know, like all of that is, is informed into the ideology of us as a country. And I think we, um, it's sort of like Malcolm Gladwell talks about the difference of an American a United, you know, a US pilot as compared to a pilot from the from Asia. Um, and the cultural differences about how our pilots are willing to argue and and literally not listen to air traffic control and make decisions at times for the safety of their passengers whereas culturally um, and I think it was Japan that he was using as an analogy their incidents are much higher uh, air traffic incidences are much higher because they don't question their government in authority they just accept it and that's interesting we are the safe as from as a con- as a country we fly more and fly safer and a big part of that based on malcolm gladwell's research and data was the fact that we don't just accept you know what they say and I think, though, that in, to, in the today's context, though, it's gone far beyond what air traffic control is telling a pilot about what they need to do about traffic. It's now everything is hyper politicized. Everything is, you know, the, the narrative that either one side or the other wants us to believe in. And that's a scary time. Mm-hmm. It's a scary time right now. It is. But how does that affect all that's true? <clears throat> But what the hell does that have to do with making really amazing
1: sauces and teaching people how to use them? So that's where I'll go to next. So the, the idea for me behind the flip flop is I've cooked deer legs for people off the board of education of university of Berkeley. I've cooked for vegans. I've cooked for vegetarians. I've cooked for how do you Republicans.
0: Cook for, how do you cook meat for a vegan. Did, did you I'll, tell him it was tofu and then they I'll just liked you. it?
1: I'll tell you. Um, I've cooked for people from all walks of life, and this is wild game. And these are people that when they walked up, they would refuse to eat it because I had killed it. Now, something happens, and you've been out of flip-flop, and you've been out of flip-flop something happens when there's the fire and meat and the intimacy and the comfort and camaraderie that's happening around the fire and people are seeing these slices of meat come off and they're seeing the joy and delight that's on every single individual's face while they're eating it knowing that it's wild game and knowing that it's wild game that doesn't taste like dog shit because that happens Almost unanimously for anybody that I meet when they say, oh, I won't eat mule deer. Oh, I won't eat this. Oh, I won't eat that. Like, why? Well, it doesn't taste good. Bullshit. I'll make any wild game taste good. Doesn't matter. I've cooked ruddy deers to fawn legs. Does not matter. I can make any wild game taste good with a flip flop. It's funny you say that because I think
0: one of the things as as an outdoor or hunting industry... Um, The way we project ourselves to people who don't participate affects the way they view us Mm -hmm. and whether or not they're uh, neutral against or supportive of what we try to do. And when we do grip and grin photos, I think that makes people
1: think that we're out there just shooting things so we can put them on the wall. That that's I think also the misconception there, and this is 100 percent true, is that when someone sees a gripping grin what they're not understanding is that the the level of athleticism that went into killing that mature animal and the years of effort and energy and failed hunts and failed shots and failed stock opportunities that went into that it's no different than someone who has just summited the Mount Everest taking a photo on top of Mount Everest. The only difference is, is that we as hunters, our Everest is a sheep, is a monster mule deer, is a monster elk, is a monster, whatever species it is that we're choosing to pursue, that's our Everest. And our Everest changes every year with every hunt that we go on in the search of finding the largest most mature animal that we can find on that hunt
0: and then what they don't understand is what happens afterwards Mm -hmm. because it's not like that animals i think that the perception is because we don't we don't control our narrative very well Mm -hmm. we don't talk about these things is that for for me personally and i won't project onto anybody else here but for me personally like. Taking an animal is, there is a wild combination of extreme emotion, like sadness and joy, accomplishment and failure. And there's all these components to it. But once it finally happens, like the real thing for me is the residual effect, is that I'm bringing a food to my family and we're going to partake in it and enjoy it and it's going to feed us for however long it lasts. Mm-hmm. And that's truly where I think we... That's the story that your company accomplishes because it's really about, you know, it's as close to and as akin to our deepest DNA and ancestral rites and rituals in that we hunted hunter-gatherers who, you know, would... I don't know, they slayed this the, the saber toothed tiger and they brought it back to the cave and everybody in our little community and village would gather around and we'd eat it together. And it was a way to commune and it was a way to, you know, have fellowship and and a lot came out of those social socializations around food. And when I'm at a flip-flop, like that analogy is in my mind. Like I look around and think, we could all literally be wearing a loincloth with a club in our hand and it would be like an absolute you know analogy of what we did as you know early hunter gatherers and you're just introducing, reintroducing us to something that is archaic. It's 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 literally deep in our DNA. Like mm-hmm. we've been doing this since humans started walking
1: the face of the earth. So they didn't have great flip the, flop sauce though. Right. They didn't have my grandfather's sauce, that's a fact. So to ride this to completion. The flip-flop for me, I'm carrying the torch of my grandfather's legacy, which was passed to my father and then passed to me. My goal and my mission here is it's not just for hunters. And when I attained the ability, you know, with the help of Maui Nui Venison to sell legs on my website was... Almost the completion of being able to reach any backyard in America, hunter or not, instilling in them that they can do this. They can cook a deer leg. They can feed wild game to every single person that's surrounding them and their family. And they can enjoy the most organic, best meat humanly possible for us to eat. On top of the fact that they're all standing around a fire. They're sharing the experience, they're sharing the joy, they're sharing the excitement, but they're missing something. And as a non-hunter, what they're missing is the ability to tell the story of their own hunt, right? So my 10-year plan is now you have all these people that are enjoying flip-flops. Whether it's somebody who's cooking them at their house and they hunted it and they're sharing the story, people are sharing the experience, everybody's partaking in the experience, non-hunters and hunters alike, but more and more people are gonna want to get into hunting. And with hunting comes along the traditional American ideology, the traditional American mindset of how we're supposed to live our life. What comes along with that is the attainment of a firearm, the attainment of a bow, the attainment of the equipment that we use in the hunt. Creating more people that are now going to have more skin in the game of understanding gun legislation, anti-Second Amendment legislation, anti-hunting legislation. And they're going to have more skin and wanting to protect and preserve our rights to carry these along and further the traditional way of American life. So you're like a renaissance man. With deer legs. With deer legs. Well, that is like my my goal is to change hearts and minds of Americans about hunting. East Coast, West Coast. And so you would you say you're on the front lines? I've been on the front lines for over a decade. And that and that's
0: something you like. You embrace that challenge. Yes. So when somebody walks up and says, "How could you possibly do this?" You're so good for having that conversation.
1: Yes. You know, and and a lot of that too comes out of. I mean, I was heavily involved in, in the NRA, FNRA, uh, in California, I, I would go and help fight and lobby against gun bills in California. Obviously California is a losing battle. There's no way around it. And that's ultimately part of the biggest reasons why I left California. Um, but that for me, like when I look at, when I look at gun rights and I look at our constitution and I, and I look at God, and everything that has been built here through phenomenal people is something that needs to be protected on such a deep level. And, and we're so far into losing the battle in the last 50 to 70 years that food is going to be one of our biggest savers if we can actually accomplish what we're trying to do. And and I can say that I've cooked for some of the craziest people in America. And I I can say that with like, there's fact, that is fact. I've cooked for some of the gnarliest people in America and the gnarliest minds in America that are fighting to preserve our traditional way of life as America was established. And it's all through food and it's all because people have heard everything is word of mouth. Everything that I've done has been word of mouth. I don't advertise. I don't, it advertises itself when people share the experience of what they've had and that right there. So, so where where can i start bringing those people and other people together in collective conversations for the betterment of americans as a whole and 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 us as independent individuals as a whole through food through wild game through the conception of their their the traditional way of life as an american we can do this this is achievable and we've we've lost our way and there's a lot of private interests and equity groups and all different kinds of things that are fighting against us every single day but when will i get invited to cook for those people because it's not a matter of of me of of if it's a matter of when you know what i mean there's there's no doubt in my mind With the momentum and the the names or the circles that I get thrown around in for me to cook for some of the most anti-hunting, anti-American, you know, most communist people on the planet. There's it's not a matter of if it's a matter of when and when I get to be with those people, how do I get to instill our traditional values as Americans and our core beliefs as Americans through the food that I'm serving these people and how can I help protect our rights and our, our way of life by showing these people what we can do and that we can be good people and that we're not fucking psychopaths with guns running around.
0: I think that's a, that's a really cool why. Mm-hmm. You know, like everybody has, I think, you know, anybody I've ever met that owned a business and I say,
1: well, you know, like what is it that you're trying to accomplish? It's like, I just need to make money. It's like, wow. I need to change the world, and I need to help save America. My family's been in America since 1650, so... What someone will do for passion, mm -hmm. is a passion... I'll die on this hill. Right. 100%. That's really cool. And that's why all the money comes out of my pocket, and that's why if I go broke trying to make it happen... Well, let's assume that we want to help you not go (laughs) broke while you do it, because we like what
0: you're doing. No, for sure. How how do we uh, help you with making sure that because selling product and and doing cooks is what provides you with a means that's my income yeah yeah and so that gives you the ability to to have a platform. Mm-hmm. So how can people help you with that? Do they, where can they go? Do you have a GoFundMe or are you just selling like, is, is there a participation
1: through purchase of your products Yeah, and, people purchasing my products, people that, where, where do they do that? They can do that on my website. It's the Uh I have acquired the com just in transition with that. Um, Flip flop. So it's www.flipflop.co. The dot flipflopguy.co
0: and Perfect. then
1: on top of that if there's people that want to do the most amazing and epic way to feed their family and friends their business associates their boards they want to show people a food experience because it is more food experience than anything anyone has ever experienced in their life I would agree with that um you know you can the phone numbers on the website you can call me we can set up a private booking if i'm not already previously booked and uh go from there and that's kind of how i've been doing it i i definitely need to change some of that up i need to do more social media i need to do more marketing and advertising as far as the sauces go and everything on that end of it but that all walks that all funds itself and is completely rolling um but yeah, I mean I'm this would be my first time that I'll say if you want to book a cook, call me and we can figure that out. Um, I've well, got a laundry I'll,
0: list. Go ahead. I will say this, I have booked a cook with mm-hmm. you and you came out and you did a phenomenal job our employees and their spouses and friends all showed up and it was it was an absolute hit. The food, the food was the meat was off the chain. Everybody loved it and they they still talk about it. We're going to do it again. Yeah. And I would just say, hey, look, I'll give you that like ringing endorsement. If you own a company, you have a family get-together, you have an occasion that you want something a little different, but that's going to be wildly popular and something that nobody will forget and really cherish, they should book a cook and call you because mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a great environment. Yeah. Um, with that being said, Hunter asked his question at the beginning. <laughs> And now, Chase, do you remember, what has he said so far?
1: I don't think Chase has said much of uh, other than fact-based checking. Yeah, he did some fact He's been doing the Jamie role. Yeah, Jamie. Yeah. Who's Jamie? Jamie runs the the Joe Rogan podcast fact-checking.
0: Don't compare us to Joe Rogan. (laughs) I think we're going to come up short. Um, Chase, he's here. We're about ready to sign this thing off. Is there any... Last comment, questions that you think would be impactful to ask Andy that you think our listeners would love to hear?
1: So like with
0: starting, like we're going through it with Wild Society right now, building a brand. You've, you're kind of past the startup part of it and you're now just sustaining it. Um, what advice would you have for someone that wants to start a brand?
1: One piece of advice. Be present say yes and show up that's good show, showing up is 99% of all of the battle and it doesn't matter doesn't matter what you have to sacrifice it doesn't matter if you're losing time with family and friends you say yes and you show up to wherever it is in the United States or worldwide and that is one of the most difficult challenges and biggest sacrifices that I have faced in the last seven years of my road that I've been on. Um, but a large portion of my battle has been saying yes and showing up and being present. I think that saying that the greatest ability we have is availability.
0: Like that, as an entrepreneur, um, it cracks me up. Like we work with, you know, one of our businesses is a consultancy and we work with companies in the outdoor industry. So we, a little bit of everybody, big companies, medium companies, in some cases, some startups, although we do less of that um, because they tend to be underfunded and crazy. But um, in the beginning, like when you're trying to find your customer, like that doesn't come with hours. Like it happens when it happens and you have to show up. And I think that's great advice. Like just be willing and you got to be there. No one else, no one else can do that part for you. You can't outsource, you know, finding your 12 disciples and building those brand ambassadors so that you can multiply the voice to an industry and to a target customer that builds that critical mass that you need to sustain yourself as a business. Mm -hmm. That's what you have to go do. Mm -hmm. And I think if you love being an entrepreneur That's the thing that you have to look at and go,
1: that's not work. That's the fun stuff. That's the part that, you know. I mean, I I can tell you I've been on over 185 flights in the last year and a half.
0: Yeah, that's sacrifice.
1: You know, and that's time that I'm not spending with my mom and my dad and my uncle, my grandparents, best friends. It's time that I'm not spending building friendships and relationships here in town. Being new to Montana, I, although I've been coming here my entire life, very new here. And the amount of friends that I have, I can count on one hand pretty much because I don't... I'm never home. When am I... I mean, anybody... I I'm,
0: I, like, it's like, where's Waldo? Whenever I'm
1: like, hey, yeah. Andy, where
0: are you in the world?
1: Here's a picture of me camped out on a mountaintop right. in my right. sleeping bag and a spotter. That's where I am. <laughs>
0: and you know, I'm honestly like, because I am older, um, those days... For me um are probably mostly in the rearview mirror. Mm. I'm 54. I'm not That's what Chase is for. Well, I mean <laughs> I'm just I don't yeah, I don't look at it that way. <laughs> no, I, no, no, I, I know. But no. I I'm I don't have enough energy to do 185 flights and be productive. I know Hunter and Chase and the rest of our band of team, you know, the, the, rest of the, team. Uh, the rest of the team is like they they've been getting after it on Wild Society. Um you know uh they're building momentum right now and wild society you know we're excited about it because we see what we're doing with our conservation projects that are a result of the revenue that we create and that's our why right and uh we're i don't know that we're going to make another hunter i don't know that that's something that we can claim to be able to do but i think what we're trying to do is we're trying to give another perspective about the fact that hunters are really truly conservationists and when we go to, and you were with us. We went to Arizona with the Cuyu guys in loophole and we did. We replaced the Arizona Game and Fish Department's entire state budget for the transplant, transplant of sheep. We impacted sheep, we impacted mule deer, we impacted elk, we impacted a lot of things. We put wild animals back in wild places that they haven't been in a while. And we did that because we're giving back. And everybody does a little, no one does a lot you're going out and you're taking people who are maybe have a predisposition against hunting and at least hoping them to get to a place where they could be open-minded and neutral. And that's a huge victory. And I think like, Hey, we're doing conservation. If we can show hunting as like, Hey, we can't go take, we have to, we have to give back too. it's like, we all have some level of responsibility, but I have to be frank. Our customers resonate with our message about conservation and it has been the the why that I believe has given us such a big jump start is because one, we have a great product, but two, they like our mission and they align with it. And the last coffee company that they worked with didn't give anything to conservation, uh, tried to defund the police. They don't support the Second Amendment. They say that anybody but a vegetarian is, you know, uh, a caveman. And, you know, I don't want to give them any more press than that. But... You know, like they're anti our entire way of life,
1: anti traditional
0: American ideology, a hundred percent. So, we're all picking a different lane to fight the same problem. Mm-hmm. It's good to have you in the brotherhood, in the fraternity, or whatever it is, because that would be I don't want to say a fraternity or the brotherhood because it, that women are a big and growing and important component of this hunting movement as things have matured from the time I was you know, 24 coming into the hunting industry to now, it's been amazing and welcome to see how many women um, have become not only a participant, but a voice uh, about the importance of this way of life. So thank you for your participation. Thank you for coming in and sitting down and talking to us today. Hopefully, uh, our listeners got something out of it. I did. I got a lot out of that. And and thank you for sharing your story, Mm -hmm. Um, all of it, because that's the one thing, Andy, I want to say this to you. Most people spend a lot of time putting a spin on who they are because they want to appear um, perfect. And I think we're sort of told that that's what we're supposed to do. But when you're really trying to help people, um, being relatable and approachable um, has everything to do with being vulnerable. And so other people can look at you and they can look at I. And we both, um, we've had different trials, right? But mm-hmm. we're broken in different ways, mm-hmm. but we're still successful. So I hope that is an impetus to somebody out there who's listening that says, hey, look look what this guy did. He was 12 years old and he
1: was, he was in a high margin distribution business and he's <laughs> now in hunting. Okay. And I could do it too. No, I will, and I'll say this, Nature is my church and hunting saved my life. Amen on that. I love that. Nature is my church and hunting saved my life. The outdoors, spending time in the woods, in the wilderness, by myself, saved my life. Um, Whenever I'm around someone
0: that has been in the lifestyle, and you know, like Mm -hmm. my family, the reason my wife and I are in the sober living home business isn't because we were addicts. It's because we were surrounded by them, our family, our friends. We experienced that, um, and we had an opportunity uh, uh, to support, helping people get to get you know clean and sober, um, to better themselves. I'm sorry to better themselves. Amen. And so that feels good to us. Um, but when you can lay it down, like um, I think Christianity, and we talked about the analogies of Christianity and marketing. Let's talk about the levels and the analogy of Christianity in the fact that there's always redemption, there's always second chances, mm-hmm. and you're a proof of that. You know, you you were on a path at one time that I'll bet you there wasn't a lot of your teachers that I were should like, be
1: in prison or dead. Right. And, but you that decided, that was the end
0: of the road for me. You decided against it mm-hmm.
1: and you decided
0: to go a different direction and nobody has ever said, well, Andy, I'd love for you to come cook and I'd love to support you with buying your product, but you used to be this, so I wouldn't. Man, America loves an underdog and they so, love a recovery story. And
1: I'll make a side note. When I was with Don and I cooked for Don and his friends. You, Don, Be specific. Who's Don? Don Jr., Donald Trump Jr. Yep. Um, I had, had the opportunity to share my story in a relative manner with Don. And Don looked at me and he just said, everybody loves the underdog. And he's like congratulations on coming out of that.
0: Amen. I, I know how, I don't know personally, I have observed how hard it is and, and I've observed it through people in our programs. I've observed it with family members and I just want to acknowledge something with you. I I have a deep and abiding respect for what you've done with yourself. And if there's anything that we can ever do to support what you're doing, you know, don't don't even hesitate. Just reach out because I'm a fan. Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of you as a human. I'm a fan of your brand and what you're doing and why. And I'm a fan of the product. It's amazing and it tastes great. And everybody should go to theflipflopguide.co <laughs> and get some product and, uh, and see what Andy does because it's really cool. Um honored that you came and spent some time with us today. Thank you so I'm much. I'm appreciative.
1: Thank you yeah. guys. Yeah. I
0: appreciate your time. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's cool. So thank you very much. And uh, we're going to sign out. And uh, hey, everybody, we're going to try to do this once a week. Um, so this is our second podcast, so tune in. Um, we're going to continue to go find really interesting people who are doing interesting things to, for the betterment of our country, for our industry that we love, which is hunting and shooting and the outdoors. Um, So if that's interesting, tune in and tell your friends. We appreciate it. Thank you for listening today.